Psalms 96, uh, 3 to 99 that we've got before us today. Uh, reading these through, you just get the impression that, uh, come on everybody all over the world, come on, let's praise the Lord, and it keeps on repeating itself. And I fear that for many of us that is just the simple impression we get. Read these Psalms through, what you get out of them, come on everybody, get it together, let's get out there and praise the Lord. And of course that is what it's being, what's being said, but it can seem so uh, repetitive and you wonder why the psalmist keeps on uh, about this. And I have to say that there is a wonderful reason and that it is, it is not quite so painless for us to simply read these psalms and think, okay, everybody, let's get it together and let's praise the Lord. There is a lot more going on here. Now, I want to make the point that I think that David <coughs> was the uh, the author of these psalms. Um, in verses 7 and 8, uh, it, it talks about uh, ascribing glory and strength to Yahweh. These are the very same Hebrew words used about how David felt he wanted to give glory and strength to the Lord in uh, a psalm which is uh, written, specifically stated to be a psalm of David in Psalm 62, verse 7. And, of course, uh, a fair uh, chunk of these psalms uh, occurs in First um, Chronicles 16, when David is uh, bringing the ark to Zion, and he, uh, he, he gives this psalm of, of praise, which is exactly what we've got here in, in these psalms, word for word. So you can pretty safely say that however else they were later used, um, these were Psalms of David. Why I think that's significant is that after his experience with Bathsheba, with his forgiveness over Bathsheba, he wanted to tell the whole world. And he says this in Psalm 32 and 51 specifically. And after that, I think he had this campaign to take the good news of Yahweh and his forgiveness and what he calls his salvation, which of course in Hebrew would sound something like his Jesus, for example, 98 uh, verse 3, he wants all the ends of the earth to see the salvation, the Jesus of our God. <clears throat> so he was doing something really quite uh, radical because he's asking the whole Gentile world to come and worship with Israel. Now don't forget that he was living in the time of the Old Testament. And not only does that mean that Basically, Israel were God's unique covenant people, um, but also he was living amongst people who were strongly nationalistic and considered that the truth, the true God, was their God, um, <clears throat> and who did not think the Gentiles had hope. And so he's ahead of his time here. <clears throat> he's definitely well ahead of his time because he's really got to the spirit of the New Testament. And at that time, of course, Jesus told the disciples to go into all the world and preach the gospel, and they had great difficulty in understanding that. <coughs> you can see from Acts 2 that they considered that going to all nations of the earth, they understood as simply uh, going to Jews who lived in all parts of the earth. And in Acts 10, the whole thing with Cornelius, <coughs> there was such a big problem for Peter getting that accepted. And yet David was well ahead of his time. And it's difficult when you're ahead of your time. It may be that in some aspect of spirituality, you have developed further spiritually than 
than maybe your family, your ecclesia, or whatever. And it's very, very difficult to live like that. And so these psalms that we're reading here are far more than, come on, everybody, let's get it together, let's get out there and praise the Lord. These would have caused huge eruption when David first came out with this. And his invitation to the Gentiles to come and sing, uh, this would have been part of the uh, sanctuary worship, the temple worship. Well, there was no temple, of course, in David's time, but uh, the, uh, <clears throat> the worship of the, uh, the sanctuary. And so when he says in verse uh, 7 and 8 of 96, <clears throat> Ascribe to Yahweh, you families of nations, glory and strength. Uh, bring an offering, verse 8, and come into his courts. He's inviting Gentiles to act as Israelites, to bring an offering, and to come into the courts of the tabernacle. And he goes on, verse 9, worship Yahweh. He's talking to the Gentiles here, what he calls the families of the nations, in verse 7, to worship Yahweh in holy array. This is the language of the priesthood. He's asking them to act like priests. And he goes on um, to, to, to say that they should worship him in the beauty of holiness. Now, what does that mean, the beauty of holiness? Well, he's talked in verse 6 about the strength and beauty that are in God's sanctuary. That's really the holy place, or if not the most holy. The beauty of holiness... I suggest, is a reference to the most holy place. It is a noun, not an adjective. What I mean by that is, the beauty of holiness doesn't mean let's worship God in a holy manner, in a holy way. It means let us worship God in the holy place, the most beautiful holy place, the beauty of holiness as a noun. When I was a kid... Um, I was out of wear a tie to go to Sunday school, and I re resented that bitterly. And I used to say to my mother, why? And, uh, you know, do your top button-up. That was the other thing, my dear mum. And once she quoted me this, because you've got to worship Yahweh in the beauty of holiness. And I, I kind of didn't quite get it then, and I still don't get it now. But uh, now I've kind of got my head screwed onto my, uh, onto my shoulders a bit better. I realized that uh, Duel Mum was uh, thinking that the beauty of holiness meant that you've got to sort of be holy if you're going to worship God. But I don't think that's what the verse means. Worship God in the beauty of holiness in the most holy place. Now, this is almost too much to get our head round that he's asking Gentiles to take their sacrifice, to dress up, verse 9, in holy array, that is, uh, as Levites, as priests, and to come into the most holy place, into the courts, verse 8, and into the, the sanctuary, into the most holy place. Now, it's not until the New Testament when the Hebrews talks about this, saying that we have boldness to enter into the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. The veil was opened at the cross, and we now can go into the most holy place. And that's very difficult, because the idea is, I suppose, for all of us, we tend to think, yes, Jesus did that, and he went in there, <clears throat> and got forgiveness for us, that's wonderful. When it's as it were, we're just spectators at a show. But in fact, Hebrews is saying, you also 
can go before the throne of grace. That is, uh, as I mentioned when we looked at Exodus 37, um, actually to the mercy seat between the cherubim over the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place where the glory of God was shining and the voice of God came from over the blood of the atonement of, of the day of atonement sacrifice. And Hebrews is saying you can do that. You can go boldly, not like the high priest who went in with a, a rope around his uh, leg and a bell on him that rung, and uh, that was so that if he had a heart attack in the, in the most holy place, they could sort of pull his body out. We can enter with boldness, not like the nervous high priest, right into the most holy place. And I think that this is what David is saying here, that not only anyone can do, but Gentiles can do. He was way ahead of his time. But he realized that this was so because he understands that God has a claim on all people. This is how far David got in responding to the fact that he felt forgiven. And his understanding of God's grace was so great that it led him to see the huge possibilities for others, even for Gentiles. Not only to come to the God of Israel, but to be uh, as a, a royal uh, spiritual priesthood, again, all New Testament ideas, and to actually come into the most holy place and fellowship with God Almighty. Now, sometimes expositors uh, suggest that these Psalms are talking about the kingdom. But I don't really think so, because he's asking Gentiles to do this right now. Through this ministry of uh, singing psalms, music was his way of witness, um, he's actually appealing to them right now to come and do this. And he gives a reason uh, in verse 13, summing up the psalm, Because Yahweh comes to judge the earth, he will judge the world with righteousness, the peoples with his truth. And uh, this is how he also concludes 98 verse 9. He comes to judge the earth. This is quoted, as you probably know, in Acts 17.31, where we're told that Jesus is coming to judge the world in righteousness at that day which God has appointed. So then, because of this future reality of the coming of Messiah to establish God's kingdom on earth and to judge the earth, therefore we are to rejoice and to come to God right now. And he's appealing to the Gentiles right now to do this. Now, I think the more you grow spiritually, the more you do understand that the, the holiness boundaries, as it were, that were set up by the law, were only teaching mechanisms, which is why they were removed in, in Christ. But he got to this point, did he not, well before most other Israelites did. You remember in 1 Chronicles 16, verse 3, he he acts as the high priest. He dresses up in holy array, although he was of the tribe of Judah, not of Levi. He distributes bread and wine, etc. And in Psalm 63, verse 2, he seems to imply that he entered into the sanctuary himself. Uh, Psalm 63, verse 2, So I have seen you in the sanctuary, watching your power and your glory, because your grace is better than life. So he had been in the, the most holy place, it seems to me. This was how close he was to God. 
Now, of course, I think this is also why he went wrong with Bathsheba, that he kind of <coughs> saw himself as above God's law. Now, <coughs> uh, I've said that most of Psalm 96 is actually found in David's psalm at the bringing of the Ark to Zion in First Chronicles 16. So then, <coughs> we also have received God's grace. We also have been forgiven. We also should be dead. And, of course, the whole thing about the Bathsheba Psalms is that they're quoted by Paul in Romans and applied to us, as if we are not to look at David and shake our head, but, but rather to realize that I am the man. <coughs> there <coughs> but for God's grace go I. So then, it's not that if you mess up and publicly mess up and you're forgiven that you become kind of uh, wishy-washy and think that anything goes. That's how it's uh, caricatured and uh, characterized by a lot of people. And of course it can be that that's how people go. They feel they can no longer judge, they can no longer tell what's right and wrong because they themselves have, have done wrong. Um, but we've all failed. <clears throat> we have all sinned no, no worse or better or whatever than, than David. And the point is that if you really believe that you have been saved, then you will declare his name. Now, he says this, uh, you know, quite a few places here. Um, <clears throat> Give unto the Yahweh, verse 8, the glory due to his name. Now, his name is his characteristics, of which love and grace and forgiveness are primary. And he wants that name that characteristic that those pers the personality of God which is focused as I say in his forgiveness of sin and yet his also judgment of sin he wants that to be declared to absolutely everybody including the Gentiles and he thinks that they can come across all these holiness boundaries to God himself now it wasn't that he was just throwing everything open. Of course, to do this, to come into such close relationship with Yahweh, these people would, by definition, have to give up uh, the worship of idols. So he talks in 97, <clears throat> verse 7, Let them all them be shamed who serve graven images, who boast in their idols. Worship him, all you gods. And I think gods there is put for the people who worship them. So he's really saying that... Uh, quit your gods, quit your bits of stone and engraven images and stuff, and come to the true God who is so wonderfully acceptant. <clears throat> he sees in Psalm 97 there, 5 and 6, that because, of the, because the presence of the Lord of the whole earth is seen by the heavens declaring his righteousness, that therefore, he says, all the peoples have seen his glory. That he perceives this, that God has a claim upon all people on the earth because the heavens declare his glory. Now, this is uh, radical. And it is for each of us in our own context to understand how we respond to that. It may be that, like me, you grew up in a very closed little community uh, that thought they were the only people and you couldn't extend fellowship or have any social contact with anyone who was not in that community and it's very very difficult to widen those boundaries what would my friends think what would my parents think 
What would my grandparents think if they were alive today? Oh, no, it's, it's too difficult. What would my wife think? What would my, my husband think? Oh, no, how can I face the possibility of being somehow thrown out from all that I have known and held dear because I have enlarged my uh, vision of God and of his relationship with other people, uh, etc.? And there is, without question, a huge price to be paid for this kind of view of God. And I can say that, that I have heavily paid that price in my own family life and relationships. But there is no other way. And so these psalms that we're reading here are not just David saying, come on everybody, let's get it together, and everybody get together, clap your hands, praise the Lord. It is absolutely radical where he's, where he's gone in his thinking. Now, the fact he asked them to bring an offering and to come right up into the holy place, um, the fact they had to bring an offering, so he, he says, uh, he expects them by, by I, I guess it's axiomatic, that he's saying, come and accept in covenant relationship the God of Israel. Now, he says that, he alludes in a number of places in the, these psalms to God's grace to Israel, and he asks uh, the Gentiles to therefore praise Israel's God because God has been so merciful and patient and gentle to Israel and because he saved Israel. Um, it's in, in 99. Um, <clears throat> because, verse 4, you execute justice and righteousness in Jacob, exalt Yahweh our God, worship at his footstool. And verse 1, therefore, let the nations tremble. So then, all the time, we're seeing him trying to uh, allude to the, the history of Israel in order to get the Gentiles to come and believe that also their sins can be forgiven. When he talks about how uh, it, God uh, judges amongst the nations and how he... Um, has saved Israel out of Egypt, etc. This is his encouragement to the Gentiles to come and, and praise God. And that's why an awful lot of these psalms uh, talk about what happened at the Red Sea. And why does he keep on about the Red Sea? Well, in Ezekiel 20, Acts 7, it says that Israel took the, the gods of Egypt with them. They carried two tabernacles through the wilderness. Uh, they were extremely weak. And really, the fact that God saved even them at that time would really be a huge reflection of his grace to them. Now, finally, I want to uh, <clears throat> have a look at um, 99. Um, where he talks about uh, Moses and Aaron among his priests, etc. Uh, verse 6, um, Samuel among those who call on his name, they called on Yahweh and he answered them. He spoke to them in the, in the pillar of cloud. They kept his testimonies, the statute that he gave them. Now, who is the they? They kept his, his testimonies, the statute that he gave them. Well, I don't think it's Moses, Aaron and Samuel. Because the they, he says, verse 7, he spoke to them in the pillar of cloud. Well, he didn't speak to Samuel in that pillar of cloud. He spoke to Moses and Aaron, but not to Samuel. So I think that the they, <coughs> uh, in the context, refers to those 
to whom God's law was given. That is Israel, that generation that came out of the, the wilderness. He gave them uh, the statute, verse 7. He gave them his laws. That was that generation that came out of, uh, out of Egypt. And he says that they kept them. And yet so often in the Psalms he says that they did not. That Israel were given God's law and they did not keep it. And we know that from the uh, historical record. So what he's saying then is this is how God saw them. God imputed righteousness to Israel. You remember when Balaam tries to curse Israel at that time. God says, no, he did not behold iniquity in Jacob. doesn't mean there was no iniquity there. He just did not behold it. And he, he tells Balaam how he sees them as so beautiful. They are like the lion aloes. How beautiful are your tents, o, o Israel. And the whole point is that he counted them as righteous. And we have the same wonder, really, uh, presented to us in the New Testament uh, when we we read about our appearing faultless before the presence of his glory without spot in his sight the point is in his sight it's how he looks at us so this wonder of how God counted righteousness to Israel this is the basis upon which David is saying to the Gentiles come on you also can have this if you come into this covenant relationship and he's saying all the way through um, rejoice because he is coming to judge the world with righteousness. As I said, end of 98, end of 96, uh, and those verses are quoted, Acts 17:31, about the judgment seat of Christ at the last day. So he's saying, let's rejoice because judgment day is coming. Now that's a big thing to think about. Rejoice because judgment day is coming. He's saying, look, you can be that sure that you are right with God and that you will be saved if Jesus comes right at this minute of course we may throw it all away tomorrow but the point is that if Jesus were to come right now we should be able to say I believe by God's grace I shall be there and therefore I rejoice because he is coming to judge the earth in righteousness, in justice and we think what, judge me in justice but the point is that just as he counted Israel in 99 verse 7 as having kept his testimonies when they didn't, but that was the, the righteousness he imputed to them, so that is the confidence that we should be able to have in him. So then judgment day should not be seen by us as the, the ultimate question mark, the big ultimate unknown that lies ahead of us, the final bridge in our destiny to, to cross. Uh, we are in Christ, and we should be able to rejoice, uh, and he's appealing to everybody to come and rejoice that judgment day is coming, uh, because we are right with God, because we are secured now in Christ. So really, this is a, a wonderful message. No wonder he's appealing for the Gentiles to come and rejoice with so much ecstatic joy, because if you can look to the day of judgment and rejoice that he's coming to judge the earth that's a wonderful thing that is actually the most blessed and wonderful thing that any human being could have a rejoicing in the hope of God's kingdom and being able to to wish on the day with joy when judgment day shall come